Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, everybody out there in podcast land. You are in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza, and I'm really excited about speaking with our guest today, as she as a, is a love activist. And what better than to speak to a love activist the day after a national election here in the States? Not only that, she is a spiritual luminary, a speaker, and a leader in transformation. And her mission is to awaken love into the world as well as inspire humanity to awaken and ascend to the power of love, joy, peace, and equality, and to come home to the deepest, most divine truth of their beingness. So she is a total friend to the humankind and I think we need more of that in 2020. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Tara Bianca to the podcast. Welcome, Tara. Hello. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank, thanks for coming in. And one of, my first, one of my first podcasts many moons ago, it was talking about no accidents. There's no accidents in life. And earlier today, I was watching the channel on, I believe it was The Economist on YouTube, and they were talking about all the foreign correspondents following the presidential election, and not to go over politics, but just the overall feeling of it. And so since you're a native Canadian, I just wanted to get your take as someone looking at the states as a neighbor and What's the consensus up there? Oh, well, there, there is no consensus. Just like in the States, there are people who are divided here. There are people who are, you know, pro one side and pro the other side and uh, have a very strong point of view. Uh, however, when, we, when we're kind of gazing into your elections, uh, one thing that is really, really clear is that there's a, it's a very, very strong, contentious um, almost acrimonious, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but kind of a play, like a drama that's happening. And so uh, I, I think ultimately what I, what I notice is that there's a lot of people are very, very invested in the outcome and they have strong attachment to one side or the other. And so I think in these circumstances when, you know, at this point where we really – are, it's really uncertain at times where things are going to fall is to not be attached to the outcome because there's nothing else that an individual can do about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so usually here in the States we have, if there is an accident, we have what's called ambulance chasers with attorneys. They have millions of advertising. So every commercial is about, you know, if you've been in an accident and, and they know where all the accidents are. And so in the States, and as you mentioned in Canada, if it's so split, one half is not going to be happy with the outcome. And does that make you an ambulance chaser because they need your love activism? (laughs) That's an interesting way to put it. Uh, Well, I think for here, and for the most part in Canada, people, once once it does fall to one side, they just let go. It's easier for us to let go because we're not not really emotionally invested uh, in the ways that the people are in the States. And so um, I do get uh, clients from all around the world, in, including the United States. Um, some people come with some attachments politically, but for the most part, people come to deal with the emotional conflicts, you know, blocks to love, blocks to, um, you know, the ways where they actually fear rejection or fear failure, and they want to address their own personal 
issues and blockages rather than, you know, what's going on outside of themselves. When you talk about fear of rejection and you talk about fear of failure, they seem synonymous today. And it seems to me that that is a result of social media where there has to be an image that you have to portray. And if it's not perfect, then you may feel you're going to get rejected. And so are you seeing that? Is that a growing concern with with our involvement in our electronic devices we hold all day? Absolutely. I have a a wide range of people who come to see me, and um, a lot of these these people who are older, so I get multiple generations that come to see me. And the people who come to see me with fear of rejection who are older typically have fear of rejection from things that happened in their childhood, specifically, you know, in relationship to their their parents, sometimes uh, in school and things like that. But the children or the teenagers that come to see me are all dealing with fear of rejection. They have really good support at home, but they're dealing with fear of rejection because of the social pressures on social media and also the messages they're receiving through just TV shows and and, uh, movies. Mm. When you said that the olders, they're dealing with uh, something from childhood, are you saying that people that are walking around in their, let's say, over 35 you don't know who you're actually meeting because they could be carrying trauma from childhood? I would say that the majority of the population is walking around with emotional conflicts. And Mm -hmm. they're dealing with stuff that they're not even conscious of, except for they see the results. So they may go, they may say something like, well, I don't know why I'm afraid to, um, you know, date somebody or go out into the dating scene. Because they have this kind of sense of this worry of rejection, or maybe they're afraid to uh, step up in the workplace and ask for a promotion or, you know, a, a new position or, or something, advancement. And so they, they sense that they feel insecure about it, but they don't necessarily know why it's so hard. And so sometimes what happens is we have these these conflicts and we can have, there's a variety of different types of conflicts. Everybody who comes to me is like a snowflake in that uh, various things have contributed to their fear of rejection or their fear of failure uh, or believing that they're not good enough in some way. And it could, could be, you know, a range of things and it's never one thing. It's not like somebody had one thing happen and then it's destroyed them. Things usually come in threes and then it gets solidified in the mind as though there's a problem. Mm. So I, I like the the threes. I know three is a magic number, and I, I. But before I go into that, I was just I wanted to give you a scenario. So, in 2020, so much has happened, right? Which is a total understatement. But if I am older and I had like maybe five years to retire, and like I'm kind of coasting, I guess, in, in my job. But then because of 2020, uh, that job's no longer there. And I don't know if I'm going to be competitive in the marketplace. And since people aren't working, I may have to take a job that's half of what I'm making. How would you deal with that person? Because it sounds like that could be more than three emotional conflicts. Right. So typically what happens is if somebody has the emotional conflicts, they happen earlier in life that set them up for difficulty later in life. So, if somebody, if there, let's, let's say there's two people with almost identical situations where they're faced with their job, their five years to retirement, their job's no longer there, and they both have to take 
half the salary of a new job. Um, if the person, let's say person A, when they were a child, they experienced uh, maybe their parents said, okay, we're going to go away to Disneyland uh, in, in about a month's time. And uh, that child was really excited, got, you know, was, was getting close to that time. And then the parents, for whatever reason, had to change plans. Maybe, maybe they ran out of money or maybe there was a death in the family or whatever it is, whatever the case. And, you know, at the last minute, they, they say to that child, we can't go anymore. And this child was investing so much into it, and they weren't even told why. And not only that, but they were so upset and so disappointed, and they were crying, and their parents were dealing with their own stress and took it out on that child and said something along the lines of, you know, don't be so spoiled. Um, there's nothing to cry over. And then it pretty much, like, shut down the emotional experience that person could have a far worse time than person B who maybe didn't enter into any last minute disappointment in their life, any type of emotional conflict. Um, but it would be, would have most likely been a series of major three major disappointments that would make it very difficult for that person. So it could be that person A and person B are faced with the same situation and person A it goes into total depression, whereas person B goes, you know what? that's fine. I'm going to take half a salary. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can. And over the next few months, I'm going to look for another job that pays me the same amount that I was making before. And they basically pivot or, because they don't have this underlying conflict within themselves that basically has something taken away within them. And, uh, and the expectation that it's, it's done, there's nothing they can do. So it really, really has a lot to do with their resourcefulness based on the conflicts that they experienced when they were uh, mostly before the age of eight, but also could be conflicts they had when they were teenagers as well. Mm-hmm. I guess the second part of that question would be uh, some of the conversation over the political landscape is, you know, we're waiting to see who our dad's going to be for the next four years. So is that, I mean, it's kind of tongue in cheek. But based off of what you were saying with the A versus B, it may ultimately be, um, one, the emotional conflict, but also that attachment and resourcefulness, depending on whatever outcome happens here in the States? Well, it's a challenging situation because we have a presidential change every four years most of the time, um, unless somebody you know, stays for an extra four years. But uh, so it, it can be such an upheaval in the psyche of all of you know, of everyone in the United States, because there is this changed, constant change, because people are so attached. And so getting into a place of non-attachment in a healthy way, because, and, and not projecting, you know, this kind of paternal aspect onto a president, or a maternal aspect, depending, you know, one day if there's a, you know, a female president, uh, is, is really important and getting into a place of like a healthy, like working relationship, just like, you know, somebody would be more, more of a, a leader or a boss or something like that than, than projecting the, the paternal and, and not being in a place of disappointment about who, who's there, but working, I guess, at a local level as much as you can to help the circumstances within your local sphere. And actually, really, and this is actually touches in in the book that, that I wrote called The Flower of Heaven, which is, uh, really touches into to love activism. And sometimes we don't have control over something, especially at the national level, but we do have control 
over what happens within our own families and our friend circles, and then even within our own communities, and to really begin to be political at the local level of how can I serve? Like, how can I better my community? How can I better my family? How can I better my friendships? How can I better, you know, if you're, even if you're at college, how can I better the circumstances in my community here at the college? Or how can I better my, my situation even at work? What, you know, the work atmosphere that I'm living in. Because, you know, even when people are at work, they're there for at least eight hours a day. And, uh, and so if you're going to spend so much time in the place, then it's really good to have a really good working atmosphere with your colleagues and, and everything else. And so these are good starting places to be able to have um, some influence, some control, and to be free of the influence, really, of what's going on nationally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my, my third part of that question is, as you mentioned, the work environment where, you know, there may be coffee cooler time or catching up on last night's game or TV show or what have you, and now uh, everyone's working remotely. So now we're dealing with isolation, and it may be an instance where you've never been that isolated before and you, you miss that human interaction. Uh, what's the way, what are some ways that people can become more resourceful, especially with uh, some some Trump um, news items talking about a second wave where we may have to stay home uh, during the upcoming winter months? I think one of the great ways is to get onto Zoom or some sort of other, um, you know, way to connect over video with people so you can see people. And, and you can have tea with people. Like you can make yourself a cup of tea and sit and chat with people. You can play games. There's online, uh, you know, crib games or um, card games and things like that or, or board games or whatever, and you can sit and chat with people. And to have a group of people even get together, it can be one-on-one or, you know, with numerous people, and behave in ways as if you guys are sitting around a, t- a table and, and, and have fun. Same with, like, even, you know, if you have friends who are musicians, like, encourage them to get on and, and hang out with you and play, play guitar or play an instrument or whatever else. And do what you can if you are unable to, to physically meet in person to keep, you know, ensure that you're meeting with people and interacting, doing fun things together, even though you're in separate spaces. That's a really good point, and, and thanks for bringing a lot of that up. Uh, there, there seems to be a resurgence. It's not that some of the technology that exists today are, is new. It's just that it, it wasn't uh, implemented or people weren't using it, uh, hence, like you said, the Zoom. And I believe there's a site that's been around since 2014 where you can actually have, like you said, a musician or a stand-up comedian, and they, they'll entertain you for like an hour it seems so far-fetched, but I guess in 2020, nothing sounds far-fetched. Right. You've got to get your fun where you can. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> and prior to the, the podcast, I, I always ask questions, of course, but you were also one of those people, and they always say the terrible twos where you say, why, why, why? That never went away with you. It, uh, I, I was reading about you being six years old, and you were still curious and asking questions. So what, what do you know at the beginning? What was the impetus of having an inquiring mind? I think I was just born with it, and, I, and I'm grateful that I was because I have to say that curiosity is one of the greatest assets, uh, one of the greatest assets that I've ever had, and that I noticed – people who are very curious are very solution-oriented. 
but mm-hmm. curious in the positive. Because if you're curious in the negative, what ends up happening is you develop something like anxiety or obsessive thinking. Because if you ask questions in the, in the negative, you're focused on that. And the mind is really susceptible to questions. And so if you say things like, why am I always, um, why am I always eating uh, candy? Or why am I always overeating? Or why do I always get angry? Then the mind goes, I don't know, let me find out. And it really focuses on those things. But if you ask a question like, why is it so joyful to, um, to eat optimally? Or why is it so joyful to eat a salad? Even if you don't normally feel joyful eating a salad, your mind will actually start to orient toward those things. Or why is it so empowering for me to apply for this job? Or why is it so joyful to, uh, you know, to learn about this whatever it is that you may need to learn about for work or, or anything. And so when you start to ask these, these types of uh, positive or affirmative questions, then what ha- ends up happening is that the mind works on your behalf behind the scenes and life starts to show up for you to answer those questions. It's not like you have to answer them. The mind itself kind of pro- what I call programs the field and brings you the answers. And then all of a sudden life is showing up in, in the way that you are asking about. I, I love that. I, I want to stay there for a second because you, okay. you found yourself at a point where you wanted a relationship with the universe or the creator or source or higher power, and your family wasn't giving you the answers that you wanted. Now, like you said, I guess the A and B you mentioned earlier, some person would say, well, I guess I'll never know. But what kept you going, and was it a large lull in time when you started to establish a relationship with the creator? Well, what happened was I was, it was a pretty short amount of time. I was about six and a half years old and I had huge questions and they were really profound questions. You know, when I think about it now as an adult, there are questions like, what's, what's the reason why I was born? What's the purpose of being born? Does God really exist? Um, who am I and how did, the, how did God get created? And so these were really big questions. And, and, I, and so I started asking adults these questions. And, of course, the adults had uh, no answers and were very uncomfortable. And they kind of sometimes laughed at me and sometimes were frustrated and kind of like just kind of pushed me away. And so I, I started to learn that, that I didn't really have anyone to answer these questions. So I thought, well, who better than the divine to ask these questions? So I just started asking the divine, and then I started to get beautiful answers, beautiful mentorship. And it was really fascinating just how forthcoming the divine and the universe was at answering questions. And it was, I think, because of, you know, as a child, I didn't have a lot of, um, oh, what would you call it, influence. I thought, if the, if the divine exists, if God exists, then God will answer these questions. And I just assumed God would. And God did. So it was really fascinating. And, and because of that, I learned that asking really powerful questions in a, in a very positive way, uh, I would get answers. And I noticed when I asked negative questions, I would stay stuck in the negative. Mm. That, that's a really good point. And I, I do want to ask about um, these attachments because, it, 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 I mean, there's laws, so it makes me think of the Kabbalion. One of them is, you know, everyone knows the law of attraction and attachment. 
so when you ask those questions, did you constantly look around and wait for the answer, or did you just get, not give it up? But did you le- let go, let God uh, leave it up to the universe to answer the questions for you? Yeah, I just I did leave it up. I I I've noticed that's the same thing, and that's when you think that you have to figure it out and have the answer right away, like with your own conscious thinking mind, that you actually block the real answers from coming. And that, that is a type of attachment because as long as you think you know, you're not in a receptive, open, empty state to actually receive truth. And so being in a place where you kind of just go, I don't know, and I'm just going to let it go, allows for those answers to come to you in a really powerful way. Mm. Now, on one hand, it sounds great if you're a single person and you live in, on a mountain in the Himalaya somewhere by yourself, <laughs> but <laughs> the devil's advocate would ask, you know, what if you have uh, obligations, either family or a spouse, and they're asking you about, you know, a pressing issue, and you're like, well, let's just let go and let God, and in and, and time we'll get the answer that we need. Right. So when it comes to practical things, of course, I always, I was very fortunate. One of the things my father taught me was you take care of what needs to be taken care of most first. And so if there is something pressing, for example, uh, if I have a client that I need to meet with, you know, on any given day, or if I have a deadline for something, then I take care of, of what that client needs in the immediacy. And I take care of what every deadline is coming up and everything else I let fall away. And then I go to the next most important thing. And so it's, it's in the in-between times when I don't have anything pressing that, you know, and that's important. This is, like, this is what I call the sacred balance where it's really important to, to allow yourself and to schedule in um, playtime or relaxation time so that you can receive whatever you need to receive in, in, in any given time and also you know, to allow yourself the time, uh, a space between when you're getting ready for bed and when you're actually going to sleep to not be on electronics, to really have some reflection time, not to overthink things, but to be in a place of contemplation, prayer, receptivity. And even if, you, if somebody doesn't believe, you know, per se in God, but they have a belief in something greater than themselves or the universe, like just even praying to the universe, Praying to your own higher self um, is a, a really important way to connect and to, to be in that place of receptivity, not just requesting, but being in that listening attention and being in a place of, of communication that is very personal, where there's a recognition of an easefulness, just like you would if you were speaking with a friend or a sibling or something like that, almost like a familiarity, just a, to, to assume familiarity, and to assume friendliness with your higher self, with the creator, with whoever you're addressing as, as that which you think is um, what I call that which created all of us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know I'm speaking to someone that lives in Canada, and, and it sounds like you're speaking English, but <laughs> the translation gets really lost here, as sometimes in some circles, it's a badge of honor to fill up every waking moment with activities. And so, 
we, we are known for having needing a vacation when we get back from vacation because we tried to right. do all this whole list. And so if you could help out, you know, me in the back row of how do you what for someone that is so used to I mean I'm playing devil's advocate here but for someone that fills up every hour on the hour or has that badge of honor how do you slowly break out of that to schedule time for relaxation right I'm a, a recovering workaholic myself and uh, and so we have this same issue in Canada and I'm sure it happens in, in various places around the world um, there's this, this, there is this need to, you know, especially to, not just to overschedule ourselves, but overschedule our children and, uh, and to not leave space. And I think the key is to get in the habit to become familiar with scheduling time with no activity. And part of it is the avoidance of, you know, time that is unscheduled because people don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to rest the mind and getting into a place where you let yourself get bored. And then a, that's when creativity can come in. But you have to get to the place of getting bored first. Because if you are constantly scheduling, you, you do not have that ability to receive inspiration from that place of creativity. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit of a funny place to be. And I remember, and I know because I'm a parent myself, uh, when, when my son. Uh, friends come and they're, and they're playing for, for an hour or so and they're like, we're bored. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, enjoy your boredom. And I, I don't try to find activities for them. I let them solve their boredom, boredom themselves and they end up doing it. In fact, they end up playing incredible games once they get to a place of boredom, boredom because they, they, um, they stop playing what they normally would play and then all of a sudden something brand new comes out of it. And so mm. give yourself that sense. And, and not only that, but when you when you don't know what to do with yourself and you ask, you know, a positive affirmative question again, what would I love to do right now? Or what would be the most amazing thing to do today? Or who would I love to hang out with? And, and then all of a sudden, who knows, you're on an adventure. Maybe you're going somewhere, you know, for a walk in a park or in a forest, or you're going to the beach, depending on where you live in the world. And, um, and then all of a sudden you're, you're on this adventure and, you know, things are unfolding, maybe you're finding things, discovering things, maybe you're having conversation that's really, uh, you know, fascinating. Maybe you invite a friend you haven't spent time with and you, you know, you strengthen a friendship. Like there are so many amazing things that can come of it from, from free time. One thing that was the joke earlier this year uh, when the lockdown happened was, you know, people, they said, I've seen everything on Netflix. I've seen everything on Amazon Prime. <laughs> and mm-hmm. do, do you, it, it was obviously a global reset for the the globe. Do you think we missed this opportunity to schedule time for that inactivity? I mean, we, it, it was scary for a lot of people because it was, how do I fill this time or how do I fill this space? You know, I, I have to, have this conversation with someone even though we're not talking about anything just to fill up that space and time right i think there are are different types of people so there are some people who tried out different things like you've heard of the whole phenomena of people making sourdough bread for the first time in their life and Mm -hmm. so some people did you know try new things and other people spent a lot of time with entertainment because people 
have an addiction to entertainment, um, and that's kind of what they go to when they have free time. Like that's what they know. And so really it is if, if that happens again, of course, if there's big lockdowns and people are in their homes, one of the greatest things that they can do is if they're living with someone, whether it's their family members or a roommate or their partner, is to, to have activities where they actually interact. And that can be like breaking out board games. Like if, if you don't have board games in your home and you're concerned about lockdowns or situations where you have to stay at home, go buy some board games so you're prepared or, or cards some cards and start playing games with people around you. And if you, of course, have a, a group of people who you're closest with that you can spend time with, they can come over, small groups, then, you know, you have your, what we call here, safe six, then um, you invite them over and you have, you know, you have your group of friends that you, you hang out and do activities with. And um, it is not, it's, a, it's a super opportunity to try something new, but also a huge opportunity when you can to get to know, really get to know the people around you. And coming back to questions, this is fascinating. <laughs> I've never had an interview where I focus on questions, but asking people questions in the, the affirmative, like what is the best thing about 2020 rather than, uh-huh. you know, complaining about why it's so negative, but what's the best thing about 2020 for you? Or what's the most empowering experience you've had this year? Or even in the last 10 years, like, what, what changes have you noticed within yourself that have been positive? And when people start to ask these positive questions and about, about the positive things in their lives, then they start to learn about uh, the people in their lives. And, and, and this is something actually you can do even online. It's not like you have to be in person to do these types of things. But they orient you toward really deepening into friendship and deepening into um, uh, powerful relationships that are meaningful. And people really appreciate being asked positive questions. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I am a self-professed uh, cinephile as well, so I, I do love a lot of entertainment. And in Hollywood, uh, your story of, of being six years old and and having, having these questions and then um, experiencing for years what is called a favor, um, in Hollywood you would write off to the sunset that's a great movie. But in tw- at age 26, you had an awakening where you felt that you dropped out of favor. So I'd like for you to talk about uh, how life is not linear and how did you fall out of that state of grace? So I was, <laughs> I was working up to this, this incredible experience of what I call unity consciousness. And uh, I was very oriented, of course. I was receiving beautiful mentorship from the divine but at the same time that I was receiving this mentorship, I was actually being challenged. I had a lot of uh, abuse in my life. And I also, because of my third eye opening when I was 13 years old, I could see what somebody might call dark entities. And these dark entities were, uh, I would say they kind of plagued me for really 20 years. But for the first 10 years, I thought that they could harm me. It wasn't until I met a man um, who was a medical doctor, but also a very spiritual man and who spent a lot of time in deep prayer and had a spiritual master in India. And I met him once, and I told him what was going on for me because I was, I was uh, really not even sleeping, not eating. It was a really terrible situation I was in. And he said to me, he said, you know, you're having a spiritual awakening. It's not what you think it is. These uh, beings or these entities cannot harm you. They can only, you know, convince you that they can harm you. 
And it's funny, I really liken them now as an, as an adult to anxiety, fear, um, obsess, obsessive thoughts, things like that. It's the same with anxiety and fear. And you, you cannot be harmed by what your mind tries to make you anxious of unless you believe it. And that's mm-hmm. the only way that anxiety and fear work is if you actually buy into it. And so these entities were like this, except for that they were kind of like a form that I could see rather than just an idea in the mind. And so in these first 10 years, I learned, uh, once I I met this man, I learned how to free myself from the fear of them. And then I went into more just being annoyed by them because they would wake me up at night. Mm. But around this time where I was changing from being afraid to just being annoyed, I went into a state of unity consciousness. And in that state, I opened up into the knowing of how I am one with everyone and everything. And I was in this state for about two and a half months. And what I could say, it was like heaven on earth. I was in this beautiful state of grace. And then what happened was I was, I was, um, at the time, married to my husband, and he was very fearful about me being in this enlightened state because he thought that because he wasn't enlightened that I wouldn't want to be with him. And so he was, this incredible fear came up within him, and because of the fear, he felt vulnerable, and so then he, it turned to anger. He was very angry with me, and he was asking me how, to, how he could get into that state and why I was keeping it a secret. So he started asking me questions in the negative. Like, why are you keeping it a secret? Why do you want me to suffer? And so because of it, he just kept spiraling downward more and more. And I had this uh, incredible compassion for him. And so I thought, if I give up my state of enlightenment, it's, you know, I, knew, I know how to get into it. I'll just wait for him, and when he's ready, then we'll go in together. But I didn't realize that it wasn't that easy. And so what happened is I gave up that state, and within weeks, I went into what I would call hell. It was like this, some people might call it the dark night of the soul. It was like the dark years of the soul. And, uh, and I went into a very deep depression because I went from this beautiful, awakened state of grace connected with the divine and everyone and everything to absolute, complete separation and disconnection. And when you're in that state of separation, disconnection, you, have, it's, you are lost. And I had no idea how lost I even was, except for that I, I just couldn't find my way back out. Like I, I went all the way, to, seemingly all the way down to the bottom. And uh, it took me a year and a half to to get myself back out. And, and the way I did it was this. So this is like a clue for anybody who's suffering or in a, in a deep state of, of anxiety, fear, not good enough, um, belief that they shouldn't exist. Because I, I run into a lot of people who have, you know, they're functioning in life, but they have a deep belief that they shouldn't even exist and, and how dare they even be here. And so if anybody's experiencing any levels of, of these things, the the belief that I had that was blocking me the most, that kept me in the darkest place, was the belief that God would not forgive me for giving up the state of grace I was in, and that I was unworthy of being back in that state because I had chosen to give it up in the first place. And I say this because, in a way, all of us have done that. And ultimately, at the very root of who we all are is, as divinity 
And we've all chosen to turn our backs temporarily on the divine to experience something very different and come back to the divine. And when we go so far away, sometimes we even forget that we've chosen to go so far away. And we forget what we're going so far away from. And it's only on the return that we start to get kind of pulled or magnetized back to that, that place where we want to go. And so for me, I went into the place that was so dark where I, I went into unworthiness and deep, deep depression. And it was in a moment, surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, I think it was Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. And uh, I was reading a story and, about forgiveness. And I realized that I was the one that was blocking me from forgiveness. And when I realized that, and I realized that, that it was me and that I could choose to be forgiven, that my, all of a sudden my, my heart opened up and this beautiful drop of golden light, what I, what I felt was the light of Christ dropped into my heart center and just exploded. And then all of a sudden I started to spiral out of it. It took me another uh, six months to get out of the worst of the suffering, but I, it was every day it was getting better and better. And then I, it took me, this is so insane, it seems, but it took me another 10 years hmm. until I could go back into that really awakened state again. And it was a very strong lesson. It's a lesson that, that when you are in a state of grace, when you are blessed, if you feel guilty or you feel bad about somebody else not being there and you give it up, and this could be anything, like people do this all the time, they'll give up opportunities, they'll give up their, their, even their own items and give them away to people or they're overly generous with people, they'll, they'll like take care of everybody else but never themselves. These are all symptoms of the kind of the same thing. It's like feeling guilty for having, you know, something more than somebody else. What's really important is whenever you have the opportunity, whenever you've been graced, is to be absolutely grateful. You can still use your resources to be helpful for people, but never at your own expense. And I learned that I could not help my husband from a place where I was in deep depression and disconnection. It didn't help him at all. It didn't help our marriage, nothing. It made things worse. And so what's best is to be in a place, and this, this, I have to say, this is the same thing about emotional states. Some people feel guilty when they hear like, of, of a group of people suffering. Or let's say some people are starving in Africa or people are um, disadvantaged in India or there are child, child slaves in, in China. And they, they, they have this type of guilt and what the, what the best thing to do is rather than having guilt, which actually blocks you from being able to do anything, is to be in a place of what is it that I can do? How can I live that can celebrate people all around the world? How can I live that can honor them? Is there anything that I can do, even if it's to help one person to be able to be alleviated out of poverty? And to really be a, a, a love activist in that you use your advantage to be able to help pull people out of suffering. And that's the, the best thing that we can do. And spiritually, that's what I had to learn is that it's far better for me to be in a state of enlightenment where I can receive divine inspiration and in how to solve an issue rather than for me to wait for people to be ready 
to, to go into that state of enlightenment with me. Thank you for sharing. I, I know that, well, I, I, I actually have the cheat code because I have a twin sister, but for the most part, we know that women mature faster than guys, but then you thought that was just a childhood thing, and then it, uh, it resurfaced when you were uh, during your marriage. And in this work, there, you have a lot of those stories. So, you know, we, it's unfortunate we don't grow at the same level or the same time. But um, thanks for sharing that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my pleasure. And do you think with hindsight being 2020 that you, you think you would have been able to write the flower of heaven had you not gone through uh, the realignment with source? I think that it was an important lesson. It was a long lesson that I had to learn. It was almost a 20-year lesson that I learned. Uh, I think that the flower of heaven is, um, you know, really the flower of heaven, I wrote it, but the flower of heaven is actually a gift from the divine that came into my heart center. Um, And I believe that it came because of, of all the steps that I took, all the learning I did. Uh, You have to understand, like, even, even in those mistakes, I needed to take responsibility for, you know, not what my husband at the time did. He was in a place of suffering, and I understand that. It's not like he was trying to hurt me or trying to control me or anything else. He was in a place where he felt lost and vulnerable. And so being in a place where I could see that and have compassion for him without going into his state was an important lesson for me to learn so that I can be free of the influence of, of um, anyone's state. And when I have people come to me for, for a lot of different type of reasons, I've had people who have been um, tortured. I've had people who have been raped. I have people who have been neglected and abused. I have people who, um, whose parents just were not emotionally available to them when they were growing up or who ignored them. So I have this whole spectrum of people who, who come to see me, and, and some of their stuff is, is I've, you know, I can hardly believe has happened to them. And, um, and I've, I've worked with the darkest of the dark, um, you know, and when I've worked with these people, if I get lost in their state, then I can't bring them into the new state of healing. And so I need to be free of the influence of the energy that they've lived in and hold the field for them to come into the truth of who they are, the remembrance of who they are. And so I think that really was an important lesson, not just for for me to write the book and also for the flower of heaven itself to come into my heart center, but also for me to be able to help people in the way that I do so that I can bring them into these states of awakening. Because it is, to me, it is a time of awakening. Even though there seems to be a lot of darkness in the world right now, this is the opportunity for awakening hasn't been like it is uh, for a very, very long time. And so people have this incredible opportunity to wake up to the truth of who they are and to wake up to what's going on in this existence. And one of the uh, biggest lessons that I've had to learn is when anybody's stuck, whether they're stuck because they're angry, frustrated, sad, depressed, anxious, or anything else, it is always because they are lying to themselves at a very deep level. And and so if you have a negative belief about yourself, it's really important to understand that it's, it's always based on a lie. It's never true. The truth is that you are absolutely lovable and acceptable just as you are. And even though you may have an idea that's negative about yourself, 
it came because of something that happened to you that you didn't understand when you were a child. And because of it, you assigned blame to yourself in, in a very subtle way that you moved along, moved along from that experience and didn't even notice that you made a negative thought about yourself. You may have thought that it was justified because of what was going on in your life. And I've never yet ever had anybody come to me who hasn't lied to themselves. And every time I take them back to what's at the root of their anger, frustration, sadness, depression, anxiety, there's always a statement that they've told themselves that we find. And they're always surprised that they they didn't even remember they had said it until they go back and take a look. And then when they realize it, they go, oh my gosh, I did say that and I can't believe I forgot. And the Uh. reason that they forget is because it's so atrocious that they don't want to even think about it. And so it gets buried. Like they they push it down because the idea, you know, we may think um, I'm not good enough and we may, may not feel a lot around it as adults because we've been carrying it around for our whole lives. But if you think about a child who first, thinks that they're good enough, and then, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, believes they're not good enough. It is hugely traumatic. And just because they get used to it decade after decade doesn't mean that it wasn't immensely traumatic, just like being in a car accident or something like that. It is highly traumatic. And so um, we're walking around collectively with a lot of these traumas, a lot of these negative beliefs that we're not good enough or that 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 people are going to reject us and it, it becomes normalized in a lot of people. They just live with it where it gets really um, hard to be with is when we see people beginning to take drugs recreationally, um, but in a way that's harmful and, or begin to take medications like anti-anxiety medication or depression or anti um, um, Sometimes people even go into types of psychosis around their emotional conflicts, and so they need medication for that. And so, you know, when that happens, it's just because the mind can't keep that stuff down anymore, and so people end up using pharmaceuticals to try to stuff it back down when they really need to express what their needs are and their hurts and everything else. When you said that you take them back, are you talking regression? Yeah, so uh, it depends on the client who comes to me in, in their situation. Sometimes you can just lead people back just by asking them questions. Uh, and some people, they need to go even further through something like hypnosis. So I use hypnosis to take people back to the very root of why they cannot lose weight or why they keep um, blocking uh, you know, romantic relationships or why they keep attracting uh, partners who are abusive or why they keep, um, you know, losing jobs or whatever it is that's blocking them. And so and when we go back using hypnosis, the mind is so incredible. You just, you just direct the mind and say, hey, uh, let's go back to the, the root of X, Y, Z, and the mind just goes back. And people are so amazed. They always think it's going to be something really, cl- like, clear to them that um, uh, a conflict, like a real major event that happens. And they're really surprised when they go back to something they've completely forgotten that they seem, you know, to believe at first glance is not even important. I can't tell you the number of people who have said, oh, it's this time when my aunt did this thing, but it's not important. It can't be, 
related. And I, and I always say to them, just tell me about it. And they start to tell me about it, and then all of a sudden it gets revealed <laughs> that this is the very thing that has them, like, overeating. And it's something minor maybe that their aunt said to them that they took, like, so painfully to heart. And then, you know, it, it changed the way they thought about themselves. And they had completely forgotten about it because it was just too painful for them to even, uh, you know, address. And so they just pushed it down and buried it. When, when you said you take them to the root, uh, I'm assuming childhood, but has there been instances where you were able to establish any intergenerational trauma? Yes, absolutely. So there have been times where um, certainly people have gone into past life situations. Um, I've had clients who, and this is usually spontaneous. I, I kind of, I used to tell people about it and, uh, and then I had a big gap where nobody was going into anything past life. So I stopped talking about it. And then all of a sudden people <laughs> end up going there and they're very surprised. They're like, well, this is not from my life. And, um, it's really fascinating what, what we carry over from past lives and what we also carry over from, from our, our parents. And a fabulous example is, I'll give my own example for my own parents. My mother, for, for uh, her childhood, grew up in the middle of nowhere in, um, in St. John's, or not St. John's, in Newfoundland. And she was living in a very small fisherman's cove, which was boat access only. And really, they had six, over six months of the year, they had no access uh, from, from the outside world because the water was frozen over and, and, and boats couldn't get, get into it. It was so cold and it's so desolate. You couldn't grow anything there. And so they lived off of potatoes, salt beef, and salt, salt fish. And there were no doctors, no nurses. They had one schoolhouse that all the kids went to. There were 13 families. There, it was really, there no, it's not like there was a hospital or anything that they could go to. So my grandmother was, um, was taking care of nine kids. Her husband died when my mom was two, and she had uh, two twins. My mom was a twin, so two kids at the age of two, and then she had a brand-new baby plus, you know, six other kids. And so whenever my mother or her siblings got hurt, my grandmother would beat the boys or she would scream at the girls because she was terrified if they even got a cut, they could die. If they, if they, if they hurt themselves severely enough, they literally could die, and so she would you know, try to scare them from um, being too active or fighting with each other or whatever else. And so when I was a little girl, my mother, when I would come home with a cut or a wound, my mother would, would scream at me and she would never hug me or anything else. And so I see yeah, these other mothers hugging their, ki- their kids and I was so confused, like, what is this? And this is what I talk about when kids go into a confused state is when they develop an emotional conflict. So I really didn't know uh, why this was. I just thought there was something not right between my mother and I. Went on with my life. And, um, and then when my mother was unwell later in life, she had a COPD and had about 10% functioning of her lungs and was scheduled for a, a lung transplant that just never seemed to come. And so she thought, well, I'll, I'll go and do some work with Tara. Maybe my, I'll have some sort of miracle that happens because I have some clients that recover from major diseases just after doing sessions with me because they clear the emotional conflicts associated with those diseases. So my mom answered the, the questionnaire that I give all my clients, and I was shocked 
to read about her upbringing and to read about a lot of the traumas that she experienced. She was very forthcoming about secrets, things I just never knew about. And, uh, and in it, this is where I learned about, you know, the trauma of her growing up and where she did and her, her mother and everything else. Um, and I learned about a, lo- a lot of other traumas. And I, I, when I was reading it, I was surprised at the number of places in this assessment where my mother disclosed how she had these conflicts. And I started to realize that I had behaviors and beliefs that were not even my own, that somehow mm. I had pick, picked up from my mother based on her trauma. Mm-hmm. And I, it started to make so much sense why I reacted to people the way I did, why I believed things about myself, why I had certain tendencies. And so we pick these things up. And when, we, when I take clients back to childhood experiences, one of the most important things that I share with them is you're, when you're in this scene, when you're in this memory, when, when your mother is yelling at you in this way or when your dad's looking at you with that disappointment or when you're, you know, your mother walks away from you and doesn't help you in this instance, you, you have no idea what somebody has done to your mother or your father. Mm-hmm. You have no idea the level of mentorship they received that made them be like that and that at the root of it, they believe they're not good enough. They believe there's something wrong with them. And they're really passing that mentorship on to you. And they're teaching you to not like yourself. But not because Mm. there's something wrong with you. Because from generation to generation, this has been taught by your ancestors. And it is a light bulb moment for people. And I always say to them, and anyone else who's listening right now, just hear this. This is so important. Just the fact that you're hearing this, is an indication that the opportunity for you to heal ancestral karma, ancestral patterning, is here for you. It wasn't available to your parents. Like It wasn't the time for our parents to experience this. But the time is now for people to start waking up. And these patterns, these beliefs, are what I call the illusion, what Buddhism calls the illusion or maya. Uh, in Christianity, you might call it Satan or whatever else. But in all cultures, we have a name for this. And the illusion, we can think of it as a force or an energy, wants you to believe that there's something wrong with you. That's at the very core, it wants you to believe there's something wrong with you and you're absolutely disconnected. But the truth is, is that you are holy, you are divinity, and you are absolutely and always connected no matter what, whether you know it right now or not. And if you can start to assume your divinity, assume your connection, and I don't mean like in the sense that uh, you are a god and there's no other god but you or whatever, not in that way. Um, it's in the place that you understand that you are, you are one with the divine. You are one with everyone. And that on a very, very deep level, if you think about creation, if the divine created you, And if there is only one God, if there's only one divinity, only one aspect that created everything, it's not like there's like, you know, one divine saying to another divine, hey, can I have those materials and all that energy? I want to create like a human being. You are created out of the same field that is the divine. And so 
there, there is nothing else except for the belief, and this is interesting how this kind of weaves together from what we were talking about before, except for the belief from something that would try to convince you that there's something wrong with you or try to convince you of something fearful. And so if you can always stay no matter what in a place, especially in these times when there's so much fear, there's so much belief in polarity or decisiveness and, or sorry, decisiveness, I can't even say it, um, divisiveness, uh, you know, is to, to really be in a place of remembering unity, remembering connection. And even with your parents, even if they did a really terrible job, they did the best they could because of the way they were raised and the, and the karma that's come through, the ancestral programming that's come through from their parents and their, and their grandparents. And what's really fascinating, people don't even know this, is if you go back only 20 generations of your parents' parents' parents, that's over a million direct ancestors that are influencing you. It's huge, the number of inf- people influencing you in your ancestry. Just direct, this doesn't include aunts and uncles, cousins, and everything else. Mm-hmm. So over a million people in 20 generations are, have influenced what's going on within your family lineage. And mm-hmm. it's, that's, a, that's powerful influence. And you have the ability to begin to, to wake up from that and mm-hmm. to come into being empowered. And not only empowered for yourself, but empowered for your community, for your family, for the world, and to start to make shifts where you stay in remembrance of friendship, remembrance of family, remembrance of love, remembrance of community, and, and, uh, and, and most importantly, remembrance of, of the amazing person that you are. Yeah, wow, that was a mouth. And, and thank you for that because you, you answered a question that I didn't even ask because uh, your book is set up it, where in the flower of heaven it was like that one day and you started writing immediately about it and then there was a second part that had taken some time. And usually in this space we have uh, that, that weekend high by going to retreats or what have you. And then Monday comes and then you kind of go back to your old uh, program. And so that answer you just gave, I didn't need, even need to ask the question. So I'll ask this, this part uh, because you're, you're clearing a lot of blockages uh, from childhood or generationally. Uh, were you able to regress the person to – and I know there's probabilities, but were you able to regress someone to foresee their future self? I've, no, that's never happened. However, I have gone back um, many times to when someone is in utero. And very recently I had this incredible experience with a client where she was actually, it was when her cells were splitting. So she had just been conceived and, and she was, uh, had just split into four cells. And we went back there because this energy came in to program her at, a, at that very early time. Like she had just been conceived and then energy came in probably from her mother um, but could have been from her father, and came in to basically program her for incredible um, self-esteem issues. And what we did was we we program we basically took over the programming, and and, and I had her absolutely choose the line lineage of programming that she was was to choose for herself. And I say choose. Now, this is really important. One of the most powerful things that the divine has taught me is 
the word choose. And, and a lot of people may say, I need or I want, um, you know, but if you, can, if you can begin to use the word choose in the affirmative. So, for example, like I choose to align with joy. I choose to align with love. I choose to be mentored by love. Or I choose to remember love. I choose to um, experience joy each and every day. It's a very powerful declaration into the field of existence. It's a powerful declaration to your own mind because your mind is actually a servant. It is not you. It is something that serves you, and you get to program your own mind. And in fact, when we go back to these places in childhood where there's a conflict, and remember I said um, all these conflicts come from a place where, where a person, a child, lies to themselves because they're confused. And the lie is, it, that creates conflict is always, there's something wrong with me, or I'm a bad girl or a bad boy, or um, I don't deserve love, or it's my fault my parents are fighting, or whatever it is the statement is. And it's always a, a lie that, that creates the conflict. But it comes from a place where you are basically telling yourself, you're telling your, the world or the field of creation what is to be. And when mm-hmm. you can get into a place where you choose to remember love, you choose to connect lovingly with your friends, you choose to open your heart to your partner, you choose to open your heart to your own children, um, you choose to, uh, to enjoy work. You choose whatever it is. You are being crystal clear with your mind it, rather than you going, oh, I hate my work. I wish it was better. No, I choose joy. I choose love. And, and really orienting yourself and programming your own mind, being crystal clear with it, what you expect and what you choose for yourself. And so in this scene with this um, woman who has this, these four cells splitting, we went in and, and I had her choose and make choice statements in that moment to program those four cells. And we chose a path that was the opposite of what the programming was when she was first conceived. And it was so powerful. And she emailed me a few days later and she said, I'm the clearest, most empowered I've ever felt in my life. Just by changing mm-hmm. those, that, that time of conception for her and what was going on with, you know, between her parents and how that influenced her. It sounds a lot like uh, the, the conversation of free will is pre-incarnation and then you play everything out and then you make that choice in the example you just gave to, to refine that. Mm-hmm. Well, it can come in, see, free choice can, and free will can come in at various times. So sometimes we have, um, it's our free will from a previous life, and this is what we call karma. Uh, so you may make a choice in the previous life that has to, doesn't have time to play out in that life for various reasons. I mean, it could be old age, it could be like, you know, an early death or whatever else. And so, you, so it's a carryover. There's a conflict that's unresolved from the past life. You bring it into this life. And so that's, that's part of the free will. A lot of people don't understand it. They, they come into this life and they're like, well, like I had, a, I had a client who was, you know, or many clients, but one in particular who was abused right from the time that they were born. And, um, and they, it was a really rough situation. A lot of people would say, well, a child doesn't choose that. And um, what's really fascinating is I had this one client who 
you know, had the most horrendous 18, first 18 years of his life that I'd ever seen in a person. And um, I didn't even know how I was really going to help them. And typically what I do is I just completely surrender to the divine in all of my sessions with my clients because <laughs> it's, it's so intricate, the work that I do. And so he didn't even want to come because he had been for 30 years in therapy and nothing had helped him. And I said, just show up. Like, I'm not like anybody else. And so he showed up and I still, I had no idea how I was going to help him. And he just sat down on my couch and, and, uh, and uh, I, I just surrendered to the divine and I said, okay, it's up to you. I really have no idea even how to start here. And the very first thing that came out of my mouth uh, that I said to him in this place of surrender was, do you understand karma? And he's like, oh yeah, karma is like immediate for me. If I, uh, you know, if I do anything, it's like almost like within an hour, there's repercussions. And I said, no, not that kind of karma. I mean, the kind of karma that would have you born into a life where you would be abused in, in such horrendous ways as a, as a baby, as a child, as a teenager. And he's like, oh, that, I don't, I don't want to talk about that. And mm. I said, well, it's the only reason you're here. And so he said, well, actually, it's interesting you say this because this morning when I was meditating, I was shown all these past lives where I had... I had abused tons of people. And so he was luckily coming to see me. He was already prepared because it's one thing for me to say, oh, well, in past lives, you did this, you did this. It's another thing for him to be shown before he comes. And I was so happy that he was shown before he came because it's not an easy conversation. And so he said, I don't want to tell you what it is because it's so horrific. Mm. And I said, well, let me be the witness. I'll love you no matter what. And so he told me all the things that he'd done in past lives. And uh, we went through and we started clearing a lot of stuff out from this life. And he left and he said, you know what, this is the first time, he's 56 or 57 years old, I think, when he first came to me. And he said, this is the first day in my life that I've ever felt happy. And he cleared so much. And by the second appointment, he had forgiven both of his parents. And when I say he was abused, I mean, in ways you can't even imagine a child being abused. Um, it was horrific. Both parents abused him. And, um, and so in this, in this situation, by the second appointment, he had forgiven both his parents 100%. And he fell in, ended up a month later uh, falling in love and retiring with the love of his wife and, uh, and for the first time allowed himself to actually be in a romantic relationship which mm. he had never before. And so these things can happen where we, we have, use our free will to harm people. And what's really fascinating, a lot of times people don't understand karma. They think karma is punishment. Um, but karma is actually uh, a system that the divine has in place to ensure equality. And so because the divine loves all of us equally and ensures our equality, then we have this process of karma in place. So that, that there's nothing that God does in, in a sense, you know, in the way that we think. It's that there is a system in the field of existence that ensures that if we harm somebody, that we will, be, we will have the same consequences so that things are equal. And if we use our free will to help somebody, uh, using our own resources and everything else, 
and we, we, then we bless the field. We have the ability to bless the field in that way. Mm-hmm. But if we harm somebody and we take from somebody, then we basically, everything will be equalized. And mm-hmm. the, this is a, a really, what I would say is a mature uh, way to, to, to understand it because a lot of people actually, they fear karma and they fear the consequences of things rather than being in a place of responsibility for things. Mm-hmm. And so the, the best thing that people can do is, is to, you know, if they have harmed people, is to, to make amends and to ask for forgiveness. And it doesn't have to be directly. I mean, even if somebody's passed away, you can ask for forgiveness. Um, you know, and I talk about this in the book of how to do it, but really it's a very simple process of simply on the level of the soul thing, to a person, you know, I'm sorry for any and all, you know, I'm sorry for any and all harm that I've caused you. I love you. Please forgive me. And, um, and then, and saying, and, and I for, choose to forgive you. Now it's important to say I choose. I choose to forgive you for any and all suffering you've caused me in this lifetime or any other lifetime. And, and then going to the divine and saying, you know, I'm sorry for the harm that I've caused this person. Please forgive me. May you bless them. May you, may you, um, bless them with whatever they most need. And, and then to say, and I choose to forgive them. Any debt that they may owe me, I choose for it to be erased. I choose for, for them to be freed and, and both of us to be freed. And, and when you do that process, it's interesting because that process is really outlined in almost all major religions. It's a, what I call a technology that the divine gives us to um, help um, you know, bring things into a healing state between people. And, and if we can do this on mass, if everybody takes this process at heart and takes responsibility for the harm they've caused somebody, if you bullied somebody when you were younger, or if you were bullied when you were younger, or if you lied to your parents, or well, it doesn't matter what it is, like asking for forgiveness for doing things, um, it, it, it's a great way for you to clear things within your own heart. Mm-hmm. And that will, and I really feel like we just scratched the surface and um, love to hear more about it, but we are at the top of the hour. And so I, I want to give you the time to uh, tell folks where they can pick up your book and you do consultations as well. And, and if it's anything like we've covered in the first hour, guys, you guys are in for a treat for sure. So please tell us how we can get in touch with you. The best place to get in touch with me is at tarabianca.com. And then you can take a look for my books at Amazon. And uh, both The Flower of Heaven there is, is there and then also uh, the book Play Well. And, uh, and then I have some other books that are going to be coming out probably within the, the next year. So I'll look out for those too. Yeah, definitely. Let's stay in touch. So with that, you have just been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hamza. Tara, it was a pleasure. Yes, let's stay in touch. Uh, Let us know when those new books surface. Okay, wonderful. Take care. It was such a pleasure to talk with you as well. Cheers. Take care. 